Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Jillian Gould. Jillian Gould is an assistant professor in the Department of Folklore at Memorial University. In the public sector, she was a museum educator in New York City and has worked with museums and archives in Toronto, Ottawa, and St. John's. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, to start off, let's start with your beginning in, in folklore. H- how did you get interested in culture? Oh, well, I... What a question, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up around culture. So where where did you grow up? um, In Toronto. Yeah. And so what was your kind of uh, beginning interest in in kind of the culture of of, uh, your neighborhood? Oh, gosh. something stand out? Um, I don't know. Not really. I mean, maybe, you know, everyone kind of thinks about their family. So I think about my grandparents who were Jewish immigrants. Yeah. And um, so maybe as I think back, my grandmother, my mom's mom would have been a big influence on me on that. So where did your family come from originally? Where, where, where did they immigrate from? Um, my maternal grandparents came from Russia and Poland. Yeah. Um, my dad's parents were born in Toronto, but his, their parents came from Romania. Okay. And then you did, you did Jewish studies as, uh, as an undergrad, did yes. you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was your introduction to, introduction to folklore then? I um, studied when I was <clears throat> doing my undergrad at U of T. I took some courses. It was a Jewish history and literature, and I think it was a sociology course. No, it was a history course, and I wrote about Jewish food. Okay. And uh, and I came across some articles by Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, who is a very well-known folklorist, but at the time I didn't know what a folklorist was, and I thought she was just a cool cultural historian. And um, I was really excited about it, and when I was ready to start my master's program, I thought about studying with her, and I did. She was teaching at NYU in the performance studies program, and I followed her. (laughs) That's where I went, and uh, and studied under her, and still... um, didn't even realize at the time I would, you know, because I was understanding folklore and culture through a performance lens. Um, but actually, my mentor was a folklorist. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you did some work in New York City as well. Yes. Yeah. So who who did you work with, or what did uh, you work for? I worked at a nonprofit uh, organization. It was called the Eldridge Street Project. They were restoring a historic synagogue on the Lower East Side, which is a famous immigrant neighborhood, um, and. It was a small organization when I started there. I was a volunteer at first, and then I got a job as the educator there. There were just four of us working, and we were restoring this old building um, that was the first synagogue built in the United States by Eastern European Jews. Mm. It was built in 1887, and um, working for the project, we were um, interested in using the space to um, tell the story of Eastern European immigration, but also the broader story of immigration and connecting to um, the neighborhood, which had changed over time. It was no longer a, a Jewish neighborhood. It was a Chinese, a lot of Chinese immigrants lived around there. And I worked with a lot of the students um, using the building as a springboard to discuss um, immigration and Jewish culture and uh, 
all kinds of things. Anyway, a historic preservation. It was it was really wonderful. And was there a project to kind of link the Jewish community and the Chinese community through food? Well, yes. Um, I developed a program that uh, that is now in its fifteenth year, I think. Yeah. Um, but I. Uh, I got it going, and it was called the Egg Rolls and Egg Creams Festival. Um, <laughs> it was a street festival, and uh, I've just learned that um, in its 15th year, it's now called Egg Rolls, Egg Creams, and Empanadas, so uh, tapping into the Latino community as well. And it was really a neat program. We had um, uh, performers, musicians, uh, calligraphers, uh, we had food, but it was all different things that were Jewish and Chinese and bringing these two communities together that shared the history of this neighborhood. And it was really a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And was it there that you started to uh, identify the work that was being done by folklorists specifically? Yes, absolutely. So when I was uh, working on that festival, um, we got a grant through the New York State Council on the Arts. It was a folk arts grant. And the grants facilitator was a folklorist. So she sort of guided me in how to develop this type of festival because before I came in, it wasn't, it was uh, the festival that it sort of started as was uh, just a, really a Jewish festival in Eastern European um, Heritage Day. And we started thinking about um, how to develop a relationship with the students that I was already working with, you know, several times a week, but taking it, you know, students who were living in the neighborhood and families who were living in the neighborhood and uh, making the space more accessible and the street. So we actually blocked off the whole street and it was a street party, um, but it was really through um, a folklore lens that I got to, that I thought about it differently. And that's why I think that festival changed over time and turned into what it is now. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that link between food and culture is so strong. I I find it's a great way to get people talking about, you know, sense of place and family identity. You know, it's uh, it's a way to kind of get people thinking about folklore. Well, it was really fun. And this this idea of egg creams, which I don't know if you know. Tell us us about egg egg creams. creams. (laughs) Any opportunity I have to talk (laughs) about egg creams. Um, It's a real classic. New York drink and um, there are no eggs and no cream. It's <laughs> it's uh, milk, chocolate syrup and seltzer, soda water. And uh, so it's sort of like a fizzy chocolate milk if you think about it. It doesn't sound that great, but it really is delicious. And it was a staple of Jewish, uh, well, they were candy stores, which were in uh, Jewish neighborhoods and immigrant neighborhoods in New York City. Um, from they really sort of had a peak in the 1920s but there were there would often be a candy store in every corner and my master's research was on these candy stores as jewish uh social gathering spaces and the egg cream as the drink and i uh interviewed people who would talk about the egg creams and it would bring them back to this place, the candy store. Mm -hmm. And it was really a lot of fun. So I wanted to bring that research into the festival and, and what could be better than egg rolls and egg creams. (laughs) And so is this a drink that has still survived in, in certain neighborhoods? Do people still make egg creams? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really taken sort of a, you know, through the, the rosy, you know, through nostalgia, people really love it and sort of want to tap into this New York experience through egg cream. So I think 
um, you know, a lot of, you know, even restaurants are serving them and it's sort of, you know, have this taste of New York. Um, but people make them at home and you can get them at restaurants. Now, they, these candy stores are not what they used to be. Yeah. It was a, you know, they really were a gathering place. There was a soda fountain. It was a place where the telephone was, where people could, uh, buy the newspaper, buy cigars, buy, you know, all these different things. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So what what was the reaction from the Chinese community uh, to, to this kind of having introducing them to, to the Jewish culture and Jewish cuisine? Yeah. And I think it, it started with um, sort of demystifying this building that was in their neighborhood and they weren't really sure what it was. Um, well, they, a lot again, a lot of the students did because they came through to learn about historic preservation um, and architecture through that building. But in terms of uh, the families and other generations coming in. Um, I think that it was, it, they, it wasn't as interesting if it had just been a Jewish festival. And that was where, you know, as a folklorist would think about that we're not just saying, you know, here's, you know, here's a culture everybody should come and learn about this, but it was more of a, there was more communication, there's more collaboration happening. Uh, we had an advisory panel with people from the Jewish community and folks from the Chinese community and thinking about what would be, what were they both looking for? And we were able to find these, um, different types of, uh, traditional culture that both groups experience. So food obviously is a wonderful one where people can come in and share something and learn something new. But um, as I had said earlier, we had a calligrapher because calligraphy is important in both. Um, While there's a calligrapher and there was a a Chinese calligrapher and a Jewish paper cutter, we had language lessons, learning Yiddish, the Eastern European Jewish language and Chinese uh, language lessons. And so they're all different things where people could sort of come in and get a sense of each other and learn. And it really opened up doors for for everybody of, uh, you know, building these bridges of communication. It was really neat. Yeah. So the the work that you're doing now with the Department of Folklore, uh, you teach m- many different courses, but one of the projects that I know you're most involved with is the the new uh, graduate uh, public folklore program. And I think what you've been describing is, in a sense, public folklore. Uh, how would you define public folklore? I know this is probably a question you ask your grad students all the time, <laughs> so I'm, I get to ask you. So what what is public folklore? If people don't know what public folklore is, what, what is it? Well, I like to think of it as... Um, First, defining it, first thinking about folklore and what is it that folklorists do. So we are interested in culture, documenting culture, traditional culture, people's traditions, um, what people find meaningful. And I like to believe that public folklore isn't that different from the work that folklorists do. We talk to people, we interview people, we're interested um, in what they find meaningful. And the way I like to think about it is that public folklorists take that field work and present it back to the community. So it might be through a public program, it might be through a booklet, it might be through a radio show. Um, and these, this is the way that it's sort of given back, whereas an academic folklorist hopefully is still conducting field work, but that um, the the product is might be in an academic journal or at an academic conference as opposed to giving back. So I like to think of it as give back. There was um, a lovely speech for the AFS, I think it was the 100th 
anniversary. And it was Bess Lomax Hawes, who is a folklorist who talked about this idea of give back. And that's how she imagined public folklore. Mm-hmm. So we're doing all the, you know, we are folklorists. We're documenting and preserving. And that there's this step that I like to think of as celebration. And that's where it sort of takes, goes beyond the world of academia and back to the public. So. Yeah. Yeah, we use that word celebration a lot when we're when we're working with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Program. This idea that that sometimes uh, communities take their culture for granted almost, and and part of our job uh, is to kind of elevate the discourse around around traditions and get people saying, yeah, this is important. This is something that we do that's that's fabulous and fun, and, and it has value. You know, it's about valorization. It's about showing that these things have value to the community. Absolutely. Getting the community to recognize that themselves. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about the program itself, the public folklore program? It's it's a graduate level program. Mm-hmm. So how, how does it how does it differ from the other graduate level programs? So in the, um, the folklore department at Memorial has a BA, we offer a BA, an MA, and a PhD, and the MA has three streams. There's a, uh, in the, uh, there's a comprehensive exam route, there's a thesis route, and there's the public folklore route. And uh, the students take a certain amount of courses, and for the public folklore route, they also have a cooperative work placement. Uh, that they do over the course of two semesters. So they get to have hands-on experience, and sometimes it's here in St. John's, or it might be in different parts of the province, but it could also be international. So students have an opportunity to do public folklore work. It happens after they've already taken courses, and they are you know, familiar with public folklore or folklore theory, and they're thinking about that, and then they're applying it to their work, and then they reflect on it, Throughout the process of the work placement, they they come up with a um, a project idea. They write a paper, and so they're constantly thinking about and reflecting on this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know there are are a couple of public history programs in Canada, but this is really unique. Uh, this is the only school in Canada that has a public folklore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing program. Yeah, and I think there's yeah. maybe one in the uh, Western Kentucky has a program in the United States. They do, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so it's great that we can we can kind of brag about that in Newfoundland. That Absolutely. Kind of unique program. Yeah. The, the students that are coming into that program, uh, what is their background? I, I know some of them are probably uh, Newfoundlanders with an undergraduate, uh, uh, you know, studies in, in folklore, but where, where, where do other students come from? Well, I think with our, our grad program in folklore, it, it does attract an international uh, international student. So we have students from all over, from different parts of the United States, different parts of Canada, from from Asia, from Europe. So we, we it, it runs the gamut. And sometimes they come in knowing in the master's program that they want to pursue the public folklore route. And sometimes they come in and are just struck by that bug and think, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to, this is the type of work I want to continue yeah. to do. And if people want more information about that program, the the folklore department is on is on Mun's website, mun.ca slash folklore, yes. I think. And and there's information there about the MA program. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and Philip Hiscock is our graduate coordinator. So okay. So people are looking for information, they can they can check out the Department of Folklore website. Uh, one one little project that I wanted to talk to you that is kind of in this public uh, folklore realm is a project that you did uh, several years ago now on fish and chips. 
Oh, yes. So we were talking about food and how we can, you know, use food as a way to get people thinking about culture. Can you tell us about the Fish and Chip Project that you were working on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was actually in grad school when I started it, and I had come from away. I, You know, of course, as I said, I grew up in Toronto. I went to New York, and I had gone from New York to St. John's. And I think for me... trying to understand this place as an outsider helped me to sort of tap into things that I think folklorists are very good at, where it's the everyday that people often aren't thinking about, hey, this is special or this is part of our culture. Um, but it takes an outsider to realize that it's different and it's not done in other places. So I started to think about fish and chips as uh, part of the unique culture of this place. And uh, I did interviews with I identified some of the the main, uh, the original fish and chips families, and I interviewed the matriarchs. A lot of the um, the husbands had passed on, so um, from the the family that started Chez's and the the um, oh gosh Scampers, and so anyway, there were these wonderful women who were the widows of the of the gentleman who started these fish and chips places. All of this to say, um, I saw a real uh, culture happening in these shops. So it wasn't just that people were coming and they, I was thinking of them a little bit as a gathering place, but also about the fish and chips. Uh, you know, they're served a little bit differently here. You don't uh, get gravy and dressing uh, <laughs> on your fish new, and chips. That's not a New York thing. That no. is not a New York thing. It's not a British thing. It's not a, you know, it's a Newfoundland thing. Yeah. And uh, and I got to interview uh, people who, both two different women who claim to have invented it <laughs> and and it was really fun so I got a sense of the history of these shops of, of what was important and I sort of thought about what makes these shops unique so that you know the dressing and gravy and of course um, the pop fridge you know you have to have a real variety of you know your of colorful and very sweet pop. I thought that that was something that really, you know, makes these fish and chip shops as well. Yeah, and things like pineapple crush and that, birch beer that you wouldn't see anywhere else. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. And then you, so then you did this research and you collected these stories, and then you did a public program at the old, was it was at the old Newfoundland yes, Museum on Dupper Street. That's yeah. right. So I had, um, and this is um, something I love to do when we think about how do we present or represent the the research that we've done and it's the idea of doing a staged oral history so we had um the people i had interviewed i even had somebody whose father um was known and he was uh, there were many kids in his family and he was the youngest um so his there was a big age gap between him of course, and his father is close to two generations, or at least a generation and a half. But he had been talked about as the first person. His name was Jim Stacy to bring fish and chips to St. John's or even to Newfoundland. And he had a big, he had a truck um, anyway that he would sell the fish and chips from. So I had about uh, five or six folks um, who I had previously interviewed, so they weren't put on the spot. And I was able to ask them anecdotes about fish and chips. There was a really great turnout who came, and the best part I often find with these types of programs is not, you know, so it wasn't me talking about, this is what I learned about fish and chips, but having the folks who I had interviewed telling their stories, telling their anecdotes with their own words, and then the audience after, to me, is always such a highlight where there's an interaction of memories and 
anecdotes and stories and and it was so so nice and uh, a few of the fish and chip shops uh, even donated fish and chips so afterwards there's a there's a <laughs> tasting and and it was just it was a really fun fun afternoon yeah uh, m- more recently, one of your one of your public folklore classes was doing another kind of food project. You did a a, a workshop that you got your class to organize a workshop around a particular uh, Jewish dessert. Oh yes, <laughs> can you talk about that? Yes, we had um, uh, at a Rikula baking workshop, and Rikula are uh, little small uh, rolled cookies of an Eastern European Jewish tradition, and. Um, I think it's a cream cheese based cookie and there you can put jam or chocolate or nuts and cinnamon and you roll it up and um, they're very delicious. So it was uh, in the public folklore course that I teach, the students each semester will have uh, a workshop that they facilitate and they research and they present. So this was one that we had done a couple of years ago and we had a local um person, Jonathan Richler, come in and he facilitated the workshop. He was mm. terrific. He runs the Jewish deli at the yes, first market. Yes, that's and, right. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I thought was so much fun was it, there is a Jewish community here, but I, I don't think, I think there might have been, you know, one or two people from the, who, from the Jewish community who attended this workshop. It was all people who were just really interested in learning about making regalak. And it was right around Christmas time. And they all said, oh, this is going to become part of our Christmas cookie <laughs> repertoire, which I just thought was so cool that now here, you know, regalak is going to become part of a Newfoundland Christmas baking tradition. Yeah, yeah. It's great when, when you see how that those cultures can kind of interact and, yeah. and feed off each other and find those similarities that we were talking earlier about, you know, that, that earlier project. Absolutely. The, the and, yeah, and, and making those connections. And that's that's really what makes it so much fun. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit as well. I hate to, to leave food behind, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about some of your work that you're doing. Um, in Toronto at the Baycrest uh, facility, and, th- and this was part of your PhD PhD research with with seniors. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? W- what is Baycrest? Sure, um, Baycrest is a um, it's an old age it's 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 an old age home, um, and it's uh, it's quite large. So there's a uh, there are different residences there. So uh, it's partly a hospital, it's partly a retirement home, it's partly uh, an old age home, so there are different parts to it. My uh, PhD research took place at the terrace of Baycrest, and so mostly um, I thought of it as the people who were well within the system. They had their own apartments. They made at least one or two meals for themselves and had one shared meal a day. And um, they were... the. I interviewed mostly older women uh, who were of the old, old variety uh, in their late 80s into their 90s. And um, and it was about how they create home in this new place that becomes home. Um, how do they make home through their memories, through their material culture, through their food, um, and how they develop these new relationships and communities in this place and it's about aging so it was about what is this culture of aging what does it mean to be old and I had about six women who I interviewed I was very close with and I in fact I had started developed a relationship with them as an undergrad when I wrote a paper for a sociology course I met one or two women stayed in touch with them after all those years and then reconnected with them for my PhD thesis and um, yeah, so it was a really wonderful experience. Do you, do you have a particular story or a particular lady that stands out in your 
in your memory? Oh, I, I talk about them all the time in my classes, but um, see, I, I always sit up a little straighter. It's radio. <laughs> Nobody can see this, but I think of Edith Kurzbat, who was British. And uh, when I first went to interview her, I was I was originally interested in immigration stories, and I had approached her and I said, "Oh, I'm doing some research on immigration stories." And she said, with her with her um, British accent, "Oh dear," she said, "I am not an immigrant. <laughs> there are plenty of immigrants here you could who you could interview, but I am not one of them." And I, anyway, she was just you know because the there was a term for Eastern European immigrants. They were called the Greenies or the Greenhorns, and you know Edith didn't consider herself. Yeah, she, was a slightly uh, she wasn't range. one of the Yiddish yeah. speakers. <laughs> yeah. So I think of Edith and I always sit up a little taller when I think of her and she was she was a very good friend. She was one who I had met as an undergrad and went right through the years and she lived till she was 99. She just died about four years ago and mm. she was terrific. Um, and they were all they were they were all wonderful. Um, yeah. I, I learned so much from them. From yeah, it was a very. I, I feel very lucky that I got to do that. So you talked about how they would try and construct a sense of home in this new place. Uh, how would they do that? How would they turn this kind of institutional space into something that was more personal? Mm, that's such a good question. I think it, it happened in all different ways. Sometimes in their in their little apartments, but I also looked at the public spaces. So um, they would have on their floor. Uh, there was one lady, Ann Himmel, who they would have um, their their floor meetings, and Ann would would set a table in the in the hallway, but she would bring you know, cakes and she would have schnapps and she would have tea and she <laughs> she was a real host, you know, in her life. And I think she continued to do that. So even in this public, you know, this this institutional hallway, uh, they turned it into this party. And, and I think that was really neat. And they did it through, you know, they would just sort of um, find a way they, you know, in the in the lobby, they would, you know, sit and chat and it was sort of like a, a front porch type. There's another lady, Bert. Um, her name was Bertha, but everybody called her Bert. And she sort of took, she called it Bert's Lobby. And there was, a, she sat on a chair in front of the elevator and it became her sort of stoop, you know, that you imagine outside of a house. And she would sort of gossip and she would say, pull up a chair. And, <laughs> you know, and it just, and in all these different ways. And I think, um, <clears throat> So it through in those ways where they would sort of use the public space, but also w the way that they sort of recreated home, you know, where these were women who had lived such full lives and some, you know, just incredible. You know, there were, you know, some were Holocaust survivors, some came post-war, some were born in Canada, but they had such different stories and they sort of would come together in this place after living in many homes and you know what were the things that they brought with them what what were the things that that made home for them so it was um you know the you know could be photographs or it could be you know the stories they told <clears throat> and i was also very interested in ritual um so some of the as as jewish women and again um the focus was often on women because i think it was uh around 80% women, 20% men, just because women outlive the men. <laughs> so, um, but that I often thought, one of the, the lessons I took away also was I, I always thought of this idea of ritual and, and traditional culture as something we do for our children. So um, I grew up in a Jewish home. My mom would light the Shabbat candles, and I always thought, okay, that's just something she does because I'm a kid and she wants me to learn this. But here were women alone in their apartments, and they were lighting those candles. And it was something that was very meaningful. And as they did it, they would tell the stories of, or they would take them back mm. to 
lighting it with their families or having their own parents light it or, you know, through all these different. And so it was it was just really eye opening when I realized that it's not something we just do for others, but it's such a part of their it's embodied of who they are. Yeah, it's really neat. Yeah. And I know you did some work, a little bit of work. Uh, we're coming to the end of our, our time here, but I, I know they've done some work on kind of memorial rituals as well, like just when someone had passed away in the in that small yes. community. Yeah. yeah. So they did, um, They there was a a Jewish mourning custom. It's called Shiva. So you, after somebody dies, there are seven days of, of mourning in, in, a, in the home. And... So they created their own Shiva ritual because often the, the Shiva is the immediate family. And here in this home that they had created or, you know, that they are now a part of, um, they realized that they were losing a family member as well. So there was no place in the, in the official culture for them to mourn their friends. So they, they created their own Shiva ritual. Um, and they called it a Shiva gathering and they would get together and do what people would, what, people's families were doing in their homes. It's a little confusing <laughs> to describe it, but they they, they sort of took a, a tradition. A, fam- and, a home ritual to and and kind of adapted it to yeah, a new space. Fascinating. Exactly. Well, Jillian, this has been great. Thank you for thank you for coming on the show. I mean I think we could probably you know talk forever about food and I know <laughs> I want to keep talking. That was so much fun. <laughs> Thanks, Dale. Well thank you for thank you for coming in. Uh, you've been listening uh, to Living Heritage on CHMR. Uh, my name is Dale Jarvis, and uh, yeah, our production assistant is Tara Barrett. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Thank you.